This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, good afternoon. Well, let's try that again. Hold on a second. One more time. Take two. Okay, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you guys are strapped in. I hope you've got your seatbelts on because this is a rocket-powered week. We are going through Parsha's Bahaloscha. Wow, is that chock full of incredibly good stuff. You guys remember that coffee company, Chock Full of Nuts? This week is just incredible. Like, mom, like Parsha's Bahaloscha is just brimming, brimming with incredible Torah. So we're going to try to get a bunch of points in today. I, I got to tell you, though, whatever many points we get in, we're only scratching the surface. This week's Parsha is mm, so full of Geshmakite awesomeness. God's glory on full display. Uh, before I get started, though, I do want to say thank you to all of you for coming on. Whether you're listening to this or you're watching this on Zoom, whether you're watching it later at Torah Anytime or a podcast or whatever it is, I thank you for being part of this incredible Torah learning community that we have, learning together, growing together. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate it, especially for those who come on live and especially for those who leave their cameras on so I can look like I'm talking to human beings. I really appreciate it. You guys are amazing. And for everybody, any, any, any way you consume this, thank you for consuming this. Uh, I want to thank the amazing folk over at Yeshiva Beth Yehuda and Partners Detroit for arranging all these lunch and learns that we learn together and grow together. Eventually, we are going to go back to in-person learning. And I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. That's right. It's an app. Yep. Uh-huh. And it's also a podcast. That's right, uh uh-huh. And they're now beta testing their new launch of their new app, which will come out soon and will supposedly, I don't know yet because I didn't see it, but will blow your minds. They are dedicated day and night to providing billions of hours of Torah content. They literally had over 10 million hours of Torah content downloaded last year and listened to, which is just an incredible, incredible, incredible number. Uh, My family is addicted to Torah anytime. So thank you, Torah anytime. We appreciate all that you do. I also want to tell you that my brother, Azriel, uh, Israel Burnham, in his kindness and benevolence, has set up a platform for any rabbi who wants to be able to get themselves onto a podcast out there. You can reach out to me. If you are a rabbi or a disseminator of Torah knowledge and you want your own podcast, you can get that. But in the meantime, I do have a podcast as well. It's called Burnham on the Parsha, and you can access it anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and so on and so forth. Google Podcasts, Android, whatever it is. Okay, and now we can get started. Ladies and gentlemen, here we go. Parshas Baaloscha. We don't get very far into the Parsha before we get our first mess- salvo of messages. Like, sometimes you get into a Parsha, like the beginning is a little bit more dry, shall we call it. Of course, it's because we don't understand the Torah from the God's eyes. If we did, every bit of it would be like, just full of amazingness. But in this week's Parsha, I mean, you don't get started past like the first few words of this Parsha and you're already being bombarded multiple, multiple messages. Parshas Baalosko starts off with talking about the giving, the bringing up of the menorah. Vayedaber, <coughs> here we go. Bamidbar, Parak Ches Pasuk Aleph, Numbers 8-1. Vayedaber, Adonai Moshe Lemar. And Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Daber al Aaron Vamarte, love, speak to Aaron, you will say to him, Behalosko Zaneros, when you are bringing up, when you are kindling the lamps, El Mul Pnei Menorah, Ya'iru Shivas Haneros, all the lamps on the menorah have to face towards the Panea Menorah, towards the face of the menorah, which is a dispute exactly which lamp that it referred to, but let's assume it referred to the middle lamp. So all the lamps, the cups in 
the menorah were relatively big, and the lamps had like a little metal, um, sort of like a metal spigot that would lead the, 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 the wicks out of the cup full of oil. So all the wicks would be facing towards the inner ones. You have the, the right three ones would be facing left, the left three ones would be facing right, and the middle one would be going straight up. El mul penei ha-menorah ya'iru shavas to the face of the menorah all seven candles shall be lit. Vayas kein aharon. And so did Aaron do. El mul penei ha-menorah ha-la towards the middle lamps. He uh, kindled the, the lamps, kasher tziva Hashem Moshe, like Hashem commanded Moshe. Now this seems to be a strange uh, verse, because... You generally assume, it's not like every time, there's many times in the Torah where Hashem tells Moshe, tell Aaron stuff, right? Because Aaron was the high priest. So there are many times throughout the Torah that Hashem tells Moshe to tell Aaron various things. And almost never does it say, and Aaron did it. Okay, duh. Like, yeah, that's what we were expecting. Aaron was the high priest. So you would assume that that's exactly what he would do, whatever Moshe told him in the name of God. So what does it mean by Yas Kain Aaron? What is the Torah coming to tell you when it says that Aaron did thus? Okay? Of course he did thus. That's what Aaron does best, is listen to Moshe when Moshe gives him instruction from God. And then, to even confound this matter further, Rashi, a very famous Rashi, quotes the Medrash that says, Vayas Kain Aaron, and Aaron did so. What does that mean? To tell you the incredible praise of Aaron that he didn't switch it up. Mm. He didn't switch it up. So uh, that you, it seems like Rashi's coming to answer the question of why do you got to tell us that Aaron did it? Didn't Aaron always do it? But then he answers it and he just creates more questions. He says, oh, the reason why you got to tell us that Aaron did it is to tell you the praise of Aaron that he didn't switch. Of course. So wait, God's going to tell him, face it towards the middle, and he's going to face it towards the outside? Is that where, oh, look, Aaron is amazing. He didn't rebel against God. He didn't switch it up. What does that mean? Okay, now I want to tell you a vert that I've heard many times in my life, an idea that I've heard many times in my life, but then I'll tell you an idea that I heard last year, and it just blew my mind, and I'm so happy to share it with you. This, the standard part they say, the standard explanation they say, is to tell you the incredible praise of Aaron, that he didn't switch the intensity and the joy and the enthusiasm that he brought to the mitzvah, despite doing it for 40 years, roughly, 39 years. Right? Aaron brought, lit the, kindled the menorah as the high priest for 39 years. From the time of the second year when they came out of, the, of, of, of Egypt, which is when they erected the tabernacle, until he died in the 40th year, in, in, in Av, in Rosh Chodesh Av, uh, which is the fifth month of the year. So it's a little bit less than, it wasn't 39 complete years, 38 and a half years, whatever it was. For 38 and a half years, he did it, but telling you the Torah, the incredible praise of him is that every day he did it with the same trepidation with the same enthusiasm, with the same love as he did it the first day. You know, you imagine you take a husband. A husband gets married to his wife, and the first time he decides he's going to make her breakfast in bed. And he's so excited, he comes home early, and he's humming to himself in the kitchen as he gets together the eggs and the omelets and the cheese and the caramelized onions and whatever else he's doing. He's so excited he's going to make his wife breakfast in bed. Ah, geschmack. She does so much for me. She serves me delicious food. She takes care of my children. Whatever it is, I'm going to go all out. I'm going to do something special for her. And he's so excited. Trust me, if he does that every single day, eventually he starts to feel like a chore. 
it gets a little bit more difficult. And probably the women, you can say the same thing. They make dinner for their husband when they first get married. Ah, they're putting out two-course dinners, three-course dinners. It's so nice. They're lighting candles, right? Oh, what a, it's so nice. It's beautiful. Your husband's coming home from work, and you're so excited. You're going to make him a nice dinner. Yeah, try 30 years later. What's up? How's dinner? Yeah, throw something in the microwave, okay? I think I put some... We left some... Uh, there was some baked ziti from last week. It's in the third shelf of the refrigerator. Just take it out, throw it in the, in the, in the microwave. I already ate. Where's the enthusiasm? Where's the love? Where's the excitement? Where's the passion? Aaron To tell you the incredible praise of Aaron that he lit the menorah for 40 years, 38 and a half years, and every single day he mounted the steps leading up to the menorah, and he lit the menorah with trepidation and joy and total devotion to God. 38 years in, and every single day he did it as if it was the most exciting, most memorable event in his day. That's incredible. So that's a famous idea. The idea that it's, it's difficult. It definitely is hard. You know, scientifically, let me tell you a little bit about how I go to restaurants. Okay? And yes, Flo, you are correct. My mom did just join. Ima, it's good to see you. Okay. There we go. Now, when I go to restaurants, I almost never... I almost never go to restaurants. <laughs> I almost, when I go to restaurants, I don't get the big steak. You know why? The big steak is a waste of money. Scientifically, we know that when something is new, you find it more exciting. It's more palatable. You're, you're, you get more pleasure out of it. Like There's scientific studies that determine how your, your pleasure center lights up. When you taste something new, the first bite, explosion of pleasure. Then you take a second bite, a little bit less. By the time you're, you, you, you go into a steakhouse, even a great steak, the first bite, you're like, oh, this is so, this is so good. The second bite, you're like, mm, they make good steak here. Third bite, you're like, wow, I really like the steak. Fourth bite, you're like, yeah, so what, what's going on in the stock market? And you're eating your steak while you're talking about other things because it's not attracting your attention anymore. It's not new. It's not exciting, right? So if you go to a restaurant, the trick is order a lot of hors d'oeuvres. Order a lot of, sorry, and hors d'oeuvres. Hors d'oeuvres like you walk to an event and they're strolling hors d'oeuvres. Um, appetizers. Order lots of appetizers. They're, they're smaller in size, but you get to make your mouth explode with new flavors each time. So what I do when I go to a restaurant, I'll usually just like, I'll order big time off the appetizer menu, and rarely will I get a main, because I'd rather just get more, app- give me three more appetizers for the price of one main, and I'll get more excitement, more new stuff. The same thing with Aaron. The science would have told you that by the time the 3rd, 4th, 5th, 8th, 20th, 30th, 78th, 139th, 782nd, 1,492nd time that Aaron was lighting the menorah, not that exciting anymore, not that thrilling. The first time you lit it, oh, oh, thrilling. The first time someone's lighting the menorah in God's house, wow. But by the time you get to the 1,492nd time, which he did get to over the course of his 38 years, you would think that he'd be a little bit tired. All right, whatever, just like the menorah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, just take something out of the third, the, the third, the third shelf in the freezer. There's some big ziti there. Take it out, throw it in the microwave. You should be fine. But no, Aaron Cohen has was able to maintain that excitement. And that's a big job. It's a big job if you're married to maintain the excitement in the service of your spouse all the time. To re make sure you get that. Make sure you psych yourself up. And wh- how do you do that? The question is, how do you how do you excite yourself? To continuously serve your spouse all the time. Now, first of all, 
one thing you can do to help your spouse feel excitement in serving you is shower her with appreciation every time she does something for you. You're like, wow, that, that dinner was amazing. I don't know how you do it. Whoa, that was look at this table. What did you put out? You put out this and that, three courses, four courses. You're amazing. You tell it to your wife or you tell it to your husband every time he does something for you. There's a higher likelihood that you're going to get that act repeated again and 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 again, which is cool. That's how you can try to encourage your spouse to continually feel excited to actually do stuff for you, is by showering them with appreciation and thanks for what they do for you. However, for you, how do you build up the excitement and the passion to serve your spouse with the same excitement every single time? And the answer is, before you do it, you have a little conversation with yourself. What am I going to do? I'm going to make dinner for my family right now. And why am I doing it? Because they're amazing. And this is my husband who takes care of the whole family. And this is my children who God gifted us with. And they work so hard and they put in so much effort. If I can make them dinner, what an amazing chos to be like God serving. Matter of fact, this week's partial, we read about the mun. God served dinner to the Jewish people for 40 years in the desert. I get to be like God. When you're a mother serving your family dinner, you are being like God. God served his family in the desert for 40 years straight. You get to serve your family for about 40 years straight too. So that's an amazing, the more you psych yourself up, talk to yourself, explain to yourself why this is great, why this is exciting, why this is an amazing opportunity that you get to serve your husband dinner, that you get to serve your children dinner. I just saw, there's a comedian named Steve Harvey, and I guess he was giving a graduation speech. I don't know, I saw a little clip. It said, like, people say, I have to go make dinner. I have to do this. He said, you know, I have to go to college. I have to go to, I have to get up. I made the bracha before, I'm sorry. Mm. I have to go make dinner. I have to get up in the morning now. I have to go to the doctor. Switch it to one word. One word. Switch the word have to get. I get to get up in the morning. I get to make dinner. I get to go to the doctor. What a bracha. Wow. Live that way. I mean, I literally just, this happened to me this week. This, no, was it last week? I don't remember. It was either this week or last week. I, I, I saw somebody from the neighborhood. I said to him, how you doing? So it's great to see you, whatever. And he's telling me, he's like, yeah, I got to go to this city because my, uh, grandchild is making a bar mitzvah and then I got to go to that city because my other kid's making a, bar, uh, a wedding. I'm like, you got to go? You, like, you poor thing. Oh, you have to go to, you know, I'm not going to, I'll say a different cities. Oh, you have to go to like, you know, Phoenix because your grandson is making a bar mitzvah. You got to go to Phoenix because your grandson is making a bar mitzvah. What a gift. You have to go to L.A. because your other grandchild is getting married. You get to go to L.A. because your grandchild is getting married. What a bracha. It's all about the perspective. When you go do dinner every night, and each night before you start doing dinner, you talk it over with yourself. Why am I doing dinner right now? I'm doing dinner because I get to serve my husband who works so hard for this family or put in so many years and took care of me or whatever, whatever it is. I get to, to make dinner for my children. These incredible neshamos that God gifted us with that I get to now make dinner to. What an incredible, incredible blessing. Wow, what a blessing. You do that, you feel excited about it every day. Next, that is idea number one. Now, the Torah also says, Vizem Maseh Menorah, the fourth uh, Pasuk in this week's Parsha, the fourth verse. And this is the work of the Menorah. Miksha Zahav hammered out gold, Adyurechad, Pircha, Miksha He, from its base to its flower was all hammered out. Right, basically, you took one big block of gold and you set to work on it in a hammer and you hammered out. You didn't add pieces later on. You just hammered out 
the menorah from one big block of gold. According to the vision that Hashem showed Moshe, so did he make the menorah. Says Rashi. What does that mean according to the vision that Hashem showed Moshe? Says Rashi, According to the model that Hashem showed him on the mountain, Sorry, uh, some of you shall see, you shall make according to their model. And that it says like this that Moshe Rabbeinu was having a very hard time. We also read about this earlier in, in, in Parshas Truma or Bayakil. Uh, Moshe was having a very hard time understanding the exact intricacies of the menorah. The menorah was incredibly intri- in, in, intricate. You got to first of all hammer it all out of one big block of gold, number one. And number two, you also have to be able to, it, it's got all flowers and cups and knobs and very, very intricate. So Moshe was having a very hard time doing it, and eventually Hashem just helped him do it on his, uh, Hashem helped him do it. There are three times in the Torah where we talk about Moshe having a very hard time understanding something, and Hashem often having to show it to him in a vision of fire. The three times are the menorah, the candelabra. The next one is the shekel. When you have the pasuk where Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu to bring the machatzitz shekel, the half shekel that everyone was supposed to bring as a carbon to be counted, so the pasuk there says. This is what they should give. Hashem showed Moshe like a vision of a fiery like coin. Now, how come he was having a hard time understanding that? That's a different question, right? I can understand you're having a hard time figuring out how to make this, this incredible, beautiful golden candelabra out of one block of gold. I get that. But how come you're having a hard time understanding a half shekel? That is a good question, but not for right now. But the bottom line is God showed him a fiery version of what that looked like. But then I want to tell you this one more time that it happens as well, and that is when Hashem says to, here we go, mm-hmm. and Hashem says to Moshe and to Aaron in Mitzrayim, saying, This is what you should have as a new moon. Says Rashi, Hashem showed him what the exact new moon looks like. And he said to Moshe, When you see this, the moon looks like this, this small little sliver, just know that it's a new moon. Now again, we don't. it's a good question. Why what was Moshe having difficulty? Like the moon is sometimes big and sometimes small. And it gets really, really small and it disappears. And then just a little sliver of moon comes out. Why is Moshe having a hard time understanding that? God has to show him a vision of a moon in the, sun, in, in the skies. Well, this is Hachodesh Hazet, when it looks like this, right? And this, this is the shekel. There were three times in Moshe's life that he was having a hard time understanding what Hashem wanted, and Hashem showed it to him. Now, do you notice what those, the, 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 the abbreviation of those three items is? Menorah is a mem. Shekel is shin. Hachodesh, this month. Hey, which spells Moshe. Ah, right? Isn't that amazing? The three things that Moshe was having difficulty with, the menorah, the shekel, and the hachodesh, that is what his name is. You are defined by your challenges. Meaning, 
doing things right, we all do the, th- the same things right, hopefully. Meaning we all, when we do things right, we're all dominating, we're all learning, whatever it is. But it's, it's what makes me most unique is what makes is what's wrong with me. The, what separates me from you is not that if we both make a bracha on our, on our water, that's not what separates me from you. That's what unites us. What makes me unique is that I have a set of challenges in my life that is unique to me and to nobody else in the world. And so do you. And when I say you, I'm talking about you. Whoever's listening, whoever's watching, you have a unique set of challenges that nobody in the history of the world has ever had before. That exact same set of challenges like you have it. And that's what makes you you. That's what makes you unique. That's what gives you such an important place in the world. Because nobody else can fix the specific challenge that you have been given. It's like a Rubik's Cube, right? There are many different, there's millions of different combinations of how the Rubik's Cube can start. They all end the same way if you do it properly. But they all have different starts. There, There are so many different versions of challenges in the world. And for God's glory to be brought out, they all have to come to the same conclusion, to the perfect Rubik's Cube. But each one of us has different challenges to start with. We each come from a different place. And that's what makes us so unique. Nobody else can bring to the world what you can bring to the world. If you can fix what you were set here to do, the challenges that beset you, then you have created a a reality in the world that nobody else can do. We often look at our unique set of challenges. You're like, God, why are you giving me these challenges? And God is saying to you, my dear child, this is you. What you are challenged with, that is you. What is Moshe? The three things he was challenged with. Menorah, Shekel, Hachodesh. That is what makes Moshe, Moshe. That is what makes me, me. That's what makes you, you. Your challenges are not there to destroy you. Their challenges are there to define you and make you triumphant. And make you bring to the world something that nobody else could bring to the world. That's the beauty and uniqueness of your own challenges. Thank you, Hashem, for giving me my challenges. They're difficult, and I hate them sometimes. And I'm so frustrated by them sometimes. But I also recognize that you put me in this world to deal with that. Moshe, Menorah, Shekel, Achodesh. The challenges, the things that you struggle with the most are what defines you. Next. That is idea number three. Idea number four. Let's turn to chapter. Wait a second. Wait a second. Yeah, no. Chapter 11, verse 1. By the way, we're skipping so much incredibly good stuff on the way to getting here. Mm. But what can we do? What can we do? Okay. Chapter 11, verse 1, by Yehiyam Kimisonanim, and the people were seeking complaints. And it was Rabba Hashem, it was evil in the ears of Hashem, and Hashem hears them complaining. What are they complaining about? They're going to complain about the mun. They're going to complain about the mun, the mana, this incredibly gift, incredible gift from heaven, right? Imagine what it was like in the, in the desert. Every day you woke up and there was a package of food outside your door. You know, it's funny. My wife, we've never used this service before. But I think if you order, from, if you order stuff from, from Walmart and it's more than $35, they deliver it for free. It's the craziest thing. I was literally about to start my class and I hear some scratching around outside. I open the door 
and there's like a gentleman dropping off stuff from Walmart. I'm like, did we? He's like, yeah, Sada, Burnham, order this. It's like a couple boxes of cereal and a couple boxes of herbal tea. It was like nothing, but but Walmart will deliver. If you order $35 worth of stuff, it will deliver to you for free by your door. It's incredible. What a crazy world we live in, by the way. How amazing is this world? You don't even have to go shopping anymore, right? And just the people just drop off. You order $35 worth of stuff at Walmart, and they'll drop it off at your door. Wow, okay? The mud used to be by your door. Now, granted, we'll get to that in a little bit more later. You'd wake up in the morning, and outside your food, outside your door was whatever food you needed for the day, and it tasted like anything you want. It was amazing. The people are complaining, and they're complaining about the good old days. Ah, we remember the good old days. What do they say? We remember the good old days when we were living in Egypt, and we were eating for free the fish that we ate, the cucumbers, the, uh, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. <laughs> the good old days when we were living in Egypt. Are you out of your mind? The good old days when you were living in Egypt? When you were being slave-driven from place to place, when you were being forced to spend all day first trying to find the, 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 the straw to make bricks and then make bricks and then build buildings to watch them fall down and disappear a few days later, the good old days, are you out of your mind? So let me tell you something, an amazing story, an amazing story. I heard this yesterday in, in Rabbi Shalom Rosner's incredible Parsha podcast. I highly recommend it. He says the following. He says there was uh, there was in the time of Rav Yitzchak Elchanan Specter. Okay, Rav Yitzchak Elchanan Specter was a great rav who lived in Kavna before the war. And one day, Rav Yitzchak Elchanan Specter is sitting in his house and he's learning Torah, and he hears two porters, a porter, a schlepper. You know, like people who were people in those days who their entire job was to carry things. You know, they, they would go to the train station, they would wait for the train to come in, and they would offer to carry stuff home to people's houses. You know, like today, you have a sky cap, a bell cap, whatever it would be like in the, in the airport where they offer to take your bags for you. So there were people in those days, were, their, their job was porters. All day long, they schlepped heavy bags and suitcases and valises and trunks from the train tracks to the houses, from the houses to the train tracks. And they're walking by the rabbi's house, and they got these big loads, and they're like, they're like talking to each other, one of them says, hey, Yankel, that's the rabbi's house. Oh, these rabbis, <laughs> they got it good, man. They got it good. They got it set. They sit in their houses, and they study Torah all day long. We got to be outside. We're working so hard. We're putting in an honest day's work. These rabbis, what are they doing? Okay. Now, the rabbi happened to be the window was open, and he heard. So he calls the two men over after evening services. He says, Yankel Chaim, how are you? And they say, oh, we're doing great, Rabbi, how are you? He says, listen, I happened to overhear you. I heard you talking, you were passing by my house today. And I happened to overhear you talking, and you were mentioning how I've got it set. I've got this incredibly good life. I sit, and, this, and then I study all day long, and it's such an easy life. And you guys, you're working hard. You're carrying, you're schlepping stuff all day long from the train station to people's houses, to the houses, to the train station. All day long, you're a porter. You work carrying heavy loads. I, I get what you're saying. So let me ask you a question, uh, gentlemen. How much do you make each day? How much do you earn over the course of a day? Is it about a ruble? So the rabbi says, I'll tell you what. I'm going to pay you a ruble and a half. A ruble and a half. And all you got to do is sit in shul all day long. You could say to him, you could, you could learn. You got to just say to him all day long. Say psalms. 
right? Be involved in spiritual pursuit all day long. All you got to do is you're going to sit back in your chair in the synagogue. They got, some, they got a nice coffee room with teas and coffee. Sit. It's air-conditioned. Of course, it wasn't air-conditioned in those days. You know, you'll sit down in the synagogue, and you'll just, you'll just say to Hillel, you won't have to carry. You won't have to schlep. You don't got to worry about your arthritis. You don't got to worry about all the things that you're, you know, your gout, your arthritis. None of that. Your creaky bones. None of that. You'll just sit and shul and say to Helen all day long, and I'll pay you a ruble and a half. You'll make 50% more than you normally make. Like, no, I, Rabbi, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I'm, I'm dead serious. I said, okay, great, Rabbi. We'll start tomorrow morning. The next day, Yankel and Chaim, the two town reporters, they come, they dive in chakras, and after chakras, instead of going to work and starting to schlep heavy stuff, they sit in the back and they start to say to Helen, in the beginning, it's geschmack. Wow, this is so much better than what we normally do. Huh? Time starts, it gets a little boring. 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. Okay, like, okay, lunch break, lunch break, lunch break. They come back, 12.45. By uh, 5 o'clock, it's, it's pulling teeth over here. But, all right, they go to the rabbi at the end of the day. They say, Rabbi, i got to be honest with you, it was a little more difficult than I expected. But, okay, we'll be back tomorrow. The rabbi gives them each a ruble and a half. The next day they go back. And, and they, just, they just can't do it. They just can't do it. And at the end of the day, they come back to the rabbi and say, Rabbi, we're done. No more saying to Helen, we're going back to work. He says, what do you mean, guys? I thought you said it's, I have the life, right? I sit and study Torah all day. And you guys, you're hard working, you're schlepping, you're carrying. You have the, you're working for an honest living all day. You're putting in the work. And me, I'm just, I'm just sitting pretty. I'm just a rabbi collecting a paycheck. I offered you a 50% raise. And all you have to do is just sit and say to him. You don't want to do it? And the guy's like, rabbi, we, we, we can't do it. We can't do it. Isn't that amazing? Spiritual pursuit is not easy. Spiritual pursuit is not easy. Now, Baruch Hashem, today, with all the classes that we have on Torah anytime, all the classes being provided, provided by partners, it's a lot easier than usual. There's, you could download and listen to, my daughter listens to hours and hours a day of classes on Torah anytime. It's kishmak. It's enjoyable. It's a lot more easy to listen to good classes from engaging rabbis with stories and jokes than it is to sit and study Talmud all day long. But the point is, don't for a second think that it's easy to be in Kolel, to sit and study Torah all day long. I can tell you, I myself do not have the zitzvah to do it. I can't. I love learning. I really do. But I, 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 I can't do it for a day straight. It's, it's really, 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 really hard. It takes intense concentration and focus. Now, once you get into it, by the way, it's incredible. Like Once you get in that zone, it's incredible. But it's not like easy. The people were complaining. Why were they complaining? Because they're in the, in the desert, and they've got no work. In Egypt, they were working! They were carrying bricks, and they were schlepping, and now all they got to do is just, God says, like, I'll take care of your food, I'll take care of your, how much you make, you used to make in Egypt over there, you used to make like a couple of melons and cucumbers, I'll give you money, you can taste it like whatever you want. You want filet mignon for dinner, you got it. You want filet mignon for breakfast, you got it. Whatever you want it to taste like, it will taste like. I'll take care of all your physical needs. You just sit and study Torah all day long. The people are complaining. They're grumbling. They're, they're, not, they're not happy. They'd rather work for their money and, 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 and do the back-breaking labor that they did in Egypt rather than have to just 
stare down spiritual pursuit because spiritual pursuit is something that actually it works to refine you and change you and make you into a better person. And a lot of times we go kicking and screaming into that direction. We don't embrace self-improvement with wide open arms because it's tough. That's exactly the most difficult thing. That's what we just said before. The things that are most difficult to us are what defines us. And self-improvement is really, really difficult. And the Torah is a vehicle of self-improvement. So we come kicking and screaming to self-improvement. But that's very important. So people look at all these rabbis, they sit and learn, they got the easy life. We got to pay their salaries. Yeah, you go ahead right now. You trade places with them. You trade places with them. Next idea. This is amazing. Are you guys ready? Are you guys ready for amazing idea number four or five, whatever we're up to? Okay. Now, they're complaining about the mun. They're complaining about the mun, right? Oh, this mun, I hate it, this and that. Now, it tells us the term about the mun, something very interesting. What, what was the process of the mun? It says the Pasuk in Parshish Baloschab, Parak Yud Aleph, Pasuk Zion, chapter 11, verse 7, the Haman Kizra God. The mun was like a coriander seed, the Eino Keina Bedolach, and its color was like the color of the Bedolach. It was like a shiny, like beautiful, iridescent, sort of like almost like a pearl. Shatua Amvilakatu, the people would set out, spread out and gather it. Betachanu Berechayim, and they would grind it up in a mill. Odochu Bemadocha, or they would pound it with a mortar, like a mortar and a pestle, where you have like you put something in a bowl and you pound on it, and you flatten it out. Ubishlu, Bafarar, and they would cook it in a pot. But also also Ugos, and they'd make it into cakes. Bahayatamo Katamo Shanashem, and it tasted like. Like a, a, a dough kneaded with oil, like almost like a like a like a like a, a plain original donut. Okay. Now, interestingly, we were introduced to the man a whole long time ago in the book of Exodus. Right, that's when we first meet the man. We meet it, I believe, in Parshas Bishalach. And the Torah talks to us about the man, and it didn't say anything about the cooking and the recipes and the, the pounding it out with a mortar and, and putting it into cakes and cooking it. Or there, there was none of that. It didn't describe that at all. It just talked about this man that was an amazing godly food that you were able to just taste it like anything you wanted. Here we go. Here it is. Um, it's Parshat Mashalach, okay? And it's chapter 16, verses like 4 through the end of the chapter. And it says they would go out in the morning, they'd pick it up, there's nothing here about cooking it. How do they cook it? How do they grind it? How do they make it? They put it into cakes. They formed it in this. They cooked it. They baked it. There's, there's none of that. So what's going on? So one answer that is given is that the man was an incredible thermometer telling you how good of a human being you were. For starters, it also it, 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 you could see where you found it. It said the men would stroll out. It says, The men would spread out and look for the man. The, the, the sages tell us if you were very righteous, you would wake up in the morning, the mun was right outside your door. You didn't have to work for it at all. If you weren't so righteous, it would be a little bit of a walk. If you were really, really not so righteous, you'd have to walk a couple miles to get to your food. And that was God's way of telling you, like, you didn't act properly yesterday. It was like an amazing experience that every single day, you literally got like a temperature, temperature reading. All these COVID, have to walk into stores and they take your temperature and it's like, oh, you're 93.4. Like, you should probably go to the hospital because you're severely um, freezing to death. Anyone who's 93.4 should go to a hospital. But like, these temperature things, they don't work at all. Anyway, it's like, 
it was like a daily temperature reading. Every morning you'd wake up and you'd be able to know, how was I yesterday? Well, if I was really good, my mom would be right outside my door. If I'm not so good, it would be far away. So one of the rabbis says the same thing was how easy it was to prepare. Back in the day in Bishalach, when the Jewish people are before they sinned with the golden calf, they were on a very high spiritual level. They didn't have to do any preparations. They just ate the mun like it was, and it tasted like anything they wanted. Later on, they had to prepare it. They had to pound it out. I mean, again, it's still miraculous. God is still sending food from heaven, but they would have to pound it out. They have to prepare it, and they have to cook it and bake it and all that. That is one idea. But I want to share with you a different idea. I want to share with you a different idea, and this is just like, this is wild. Anybody could eat the mun in the raw, and it would taste great. It would taste like anything you wanted. But there were people who didn't want to acknowledge the miracle that they're eating God's miraculous food. So they would treat it like you would treat normal food. They would go, and they would pound it, and they would grind it, and they would pair it, and they would cook it and bake it. Because this is, we, we got to do our establishment. We got to do our job. We, we, how are we going to eat this stuff? We got to do, we got to do all this work. No, no you don't. <laughs> this is a gift from God. He's taking care of you. Just go eat it. No, no, no. I got to do all these things. I got to do all this work. I got to prepare it. Same things with human beings, right? Us human beings. God gives us everything. God gives us everything. All the food that you have ever eaten was energized by the sun, which is hundreds of millions of miles away. Every little bit of food you have ever eaten. If you ate plants, the only way they grew was through photosynthesis. And if you ate animals, then either they ate plants or they ate other animals who ate plants. Well, we don't really eat, if you're eating kosher, any animals that eat animals who eat plants. Fish, whatever. Anyway, but the bottom line is everything that you ate was energized by the sun. So you can either just say, wow, God, you're amazing. Like, you give food to the world. Now, again, granted, I, I'm not recommending you eat your meat uncooked. But the point I'm trying to make is whatever, whatever efforts you put into it is, is minuscule. 99.9% of the work that it took to get you that food was done by God. Let's even assume you're eating meat. How did that meat happen? So let's just go through uh, on a very, very basic level, okay? God sent sunlight from a couple hundred million miles away. That sunlight made plants grow. That cow ate those plants and then got fat. And then someone slaughtered that cow and gave it to you. So you're eating secondhand plants that were fed by the sun. Boom. Who did all the work? Who made the cow move that it should go and eat the plants? Who made cows, period? What a miraculous animal the cow is. Think about all the good that it gives to humanity, the leather, the milk, 93 million miles away. Thank you, Cherna. I appreciate it. It's like 189,000 miles a second. What is it? It's 189,000 miles a second. Is that what the speed of light is? Okay, something like that. Thank you, Cherna. There we go. Yeah, it's always good to have a, a, a former teacher in the, uh, on the Zoom. 186,000 miles a second. Okay, fine. So 93 million miles away. Who's giving us our food? God is giving us our food. I don't care what you did in the final mile, right? I don't care what you did. To, like, it's like literally the last little tiny bits is that you got the steak and you put it on the, on the grill and you made it. You didn't make the steak. <laughs> Who's making steak tonight? I'm making steak. You're not making steak. <laughs> you couldn't make a steak for in a billion years. If you did everything you wanted, you couldn't make a steak. You know what you could do? You could throw it over a grill 
and let the flames lick it. And mind you, even those flames, where do you get those flames from? From a natural gas canister underneath your grill. Who put the natural gas two miles down in the ground, three miles down in the ground? Everything you do, you couldn't do, you couldn't do diddly squat. I'm making steak for dinner tonight. I don't need anybody's help. I don't want any gifts from anybody. I'm a self-made man. I do everything on my own. I don't want any help from anybody. You fool! All you're doing is you're doing the, the last half mile of a billion mile journey. I'm making steak for dinner tonight. The same thing with the Yidin. These Yidin who wanted to deny God's reality in the world. The Yidin who want to complain. I make my own mana. I don't get anything from God. I make my own mana. What do you mean you make your own mana? Yeah, you don't see here. I got a mortar and I grind it up and then I form it into cakes and I put it in the oven. You don't even have to do that, buddy. You can just eat it raw. But no, no, no. I make my own stuff. And I, and people eat it raw. They, they, they realize if you eat it raw, then you realize that obviously you're eating God's food straight. No, no, no. I don't do that. No, no, no. I cook it. I have special recipes. I've got my own spice mix. I make a dry rub. I make the best steak. I make the best mana because I've got a whole system when I, I take it and I grind it and I this and I that and I put it in a pan and I make it this shape and that shape and there's more even distribution of flavors. You fool, you don't make steak. Hashem saying them, look at you guys. What a lesson it is for all generations that even when the mana was coming down miraculously from heaven, even when the mana was coming down miraculously from heaven, and the nighttime you go to bed, there's nothing there. You wake up in the morning, and not only did the mana be sitting there blanketing across the floor in the desert, Hashem put a layer of dew that the mana would levitate over, would hover over. Right? Normally, things that have weight don't really stay above dew. They, they just go right through the dew. But no, because you don't want, if you have your mana on the desert, the desert is full of sand, and it gets in your teeth. It's not fun. You know, you eat it, you do a barbecue by the, by, the, by the beach sometimes, and no matter what you do, if you have a barbecue by the beach, you're eating sand in your hot dog. It's like one of those miracles. It's like, it's like on, on Rosh Hashanah, when you try to put the challah, the mayonnaise, on the, not the mayonnaise, the, uh, the honey on the challah, no matter what you do, your finger gets sticky. It's, it's an amazing miracle, really, for really. I don't know if you, you guys know what I'm talking about. But on, on Rosh Hashanah, when someone passes a tray of challah and, and you pick up the challah from the other end of the challah, there's a little bit of honey on this end, somehow your fingers are sticky. I don't know how. The same way that no matter what, when you make a, a barbecue by the beach, you're going to be eating sand with your hot dogs, right? So Hashem, they didn't want them to be eating sand with their mana every day. Hashem put a whole layer of dew on the bottom. Now normally, you put, you know, let's say you put a sandwich on top of the dew. It goes right through to the bottom and the, the dew spins around it. But no, this is miraculous dew. Layer of dew, mana, layer of dew on top of it to keep it fresh. You come and you get it. You're like, no, 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 no. I make really good mana. Watch, watch, watch. I put it in my thing with the mortar and the pestle and you got to grind it just like this. You have Martha Stewart doing shows how to make the best mana. <laughs> how to make the best mana. 12 tips to make your mana taste better, right? You first got to, you got to, you got to turn it clockwise, and then you turn it counterclockwise, and you got to use this kind of spatula. Meshugana! You don't make mana, you don't make steak, you don't make anything. God makes everything. We got to remember that for all of eternity. We got to make that for all of eternity. We got to remember this. God makes the best steak. God makes the best everything. Always, always, always recognize who makes what. I don't care if you have a couple tricks at the end for your final last mile of that steak. 99.99% of that steak was made by God. I wanted to share one last idea. I know it's already, we're done. So if you want to 
log out, you can log out. I just want to have one more very, very interesting and very powerful point. In this week's partial, we have something incredible. Moshe, at some point, basically picks up his hands and says, I can't do this anymore, God. It's just, it's too much. I, I can't. I didn't sign up for this. Right? This is in Baalosot, Parak Yud Aleph, chapter 11, Pasuk Yud Aleph, chapter, uh, verse 11. And Moshe says to Hashem, Why have you done evil to your servant? Why have I not found favor in your eyes? To put the burden of this entire nation upon me. Did I conceive of this people? Did I give birth to them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom? As a nurse, a nursemaid carries a woman, a child who's suckling from her? I, I can't do this. And God says, fine, no problem. We're going to give you a couple extra helpers. You're going to gather together 70 um, people who will carry the burden with you. And you're going to gather together the elders. And the whole story about how the elders were chosen and all that. Fascinatingly, though. Fascinatingly. So this is the partial where you read Moshe Rabbeinu himself at some point saying, God, I, I just can't do this. I can't do this anymore. I can't do this on my own. It's too hard. Yet it is in this parsha and only in this parsha that you see God talking about Moshe. Later on, at the end of the parsha, Aaron and Miriam have a little conversation that seems slightly derogatory towards Moshe, and Hashem immediately afflicts Miriam with saras. And Hashem says to Aaron and Moshe, "Don't you dare not talk bad about Moshe. Lokain avdi Moshe. Don't think that Moshe is like all the other prophets." Bechol Basi Namanhu. He's my servant, and in my entire house, he's the most trusted one. Fascinating. In the same parsha that Moshe says, I, I can't do this anymore, God describes Moshe as his most trusted servant. Meaning that you still can be a good Evid Hashem. You still can be a good servant of God, and just sometimes it's just so much. You, you look up to God and say, God, I, I know that everything you're giving me is for the good. I, I can't do this anymore. Help me out, God. I can't. I can't. That doesn't make you any bad, any less of a human being. Of course, we're supposed to have faith that Hashem only gives us challenges that we're able to handle. But we see that Moshe, Moshe knew that. Moshe knew that Hashem only gives you challenges you can handle. But yet Moshe, at one point, looks up to Hashem and says, I can't do this anymore. I need some more help from you. And Hashem delivers it. And yet, Hashem still calls Moshe my most trusted servant. So, let's recognize that sometimes... If we just can't hack it, if we're having a hard time and it's just too much, and we have to look up to God and say, God, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I need your help. I can't do this anymore. It makes us no less of a person. It's totally fine. We can still be the most trusted person, in, the most trusted servant in God's house, the most beloved person in God's world, and still be able to look up to God sometimes and just say, I, I, I can't do this anymore. God, help me out. I can't carry this anymore. That's so very, very encouraging to know that it's okay. It's okay to say to God, I can't do this anymore. So did Moshe. All righty, ladies and gentlemen, that pretty much concludes it for today. You guys have all been awesome and amazing. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful week. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.